Oh, it irks me to confess this, but I am still in thrall to my to-do list. Busy, 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 busy. Ah, I've been writing about how not to be busy for 20 years, and I have thoroughly, completely, annoyingly failed to take my own advice. Because, you know, the truth is I get a rush from doing it, from getting stuff done, action. But, you know, I feel the irony. I see it. The thing people thank me for is not my tasking. It's my thinking. It's my figuring stuff out. It's me trying to make complicated ideas more useful, more practical, more accessible. And I do that with a pen and paper and a minute to think. How about you? Do you do a good job at thinking, mulling, musing, playing, creating, exploring? If you've got that sorted, well, you, you might skip this interview. I mean, there's more to it than just that. But if you're already there, I salute you. And also, I say welcome. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, book that has shaped them. As I say that, I'm just realizing that I think one of my joys about this podcast is it is a non-busy thing. It is about opening a window into a new space to think, to engage, to talk. And that's why I love doing it so much. I met Juliet Funt when she was speaking at a conference I was at. You know, I spend time on stage. I'm a decent uh, speaker and presenter myself. So I am always delighted when someone puts on a brilliant performance where I look at that and I go, oh, that's good. I couldn't do that. Juliet put on that performance and it turns out she's just as fun and smart off the stage as she is on it. She's a friend and she's the author of a new book, A Minute to Think. But how do you even become a speaker and a teacher and a writer? Well, for Juliet, it was a delightful experience with a brilliant comedian who set her on that path. Juliet was working as a waitress at the time. And I remember kind of running through this hallway on my way to check some chafing tray or something. And they, she was doing a story. And because it was a story and not content, it caught my attention. And I leaned in and kind of went around the corner and heard her. And she was doing the same thing that actors did, which is what I'd gone to school for, which was being on stage she didn't have to be a character. She just was Jeannie. She didn't have to pretend to be someone else. She got, just got to get up as her own self and talk and amuse and delight. And it, she caught my eye. I let it go for a few years. And then 20 years later, built an entire career based on running by that hallway. I've always been curious to know how people put on and keep putting on a genuine performance. It's that word authentic. It's such a slippery word. You know, as a speaker myself, I'm always weaving together my script and my cues and all I do that I know enhances the performance and how much of the real Michael I want to reveal. I talk about the speaker persona is like a secondary character and it will creep on to you and you have to volitionally throw it aside and it'll creep up a little more officious, a little smarter, a little more contenty, a little more together than you really are. And that officiousness, that veneer will creep onto you and you release it over and over and over. And the more intimidating an audience is, this is back in the days, I don't really think of myself primarily as a keynoter anymore, but the more intimidating an audience was, if you could just turn the dial of how many C-suite folks are in the room, that's the frequency with which that person wants to keep coming back because just being you and being a little 
flawed and rough and real is very scary on stage. And now I've found in writing my new arena where I'll write something and I go, is that too raw? I might need a little persona covering that. So that feeling of how naked can I get in terms of my realness to connect with people, to not be over the line, which I have a little bit of loose lips problem. So sometimes that is the line for me. But I think that when you're coaching people and you can drop them into the realness, it usually occurs if you get them to talk about either a passion or a hobby. And they start, oh, when I follow the Red Sox, la, 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 la. And this huge personality comes out and this joy comes out. And then they go, okay, from right there, give me your sales pitch. And then they can be sucked back into, I'm talking to you about Dell's unique possibilities of blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden you don't like that person anymore. So it is a dance. It's a dance. I face the same struggle writing books too. I mean, this new one I've got coming out in January, How to Begin, it is definitely the most personal. I tell some stories of the worthy goals I take on and I figure out as I go through the book. But how much of myself do I show? How much is too little? How much is too much? And then when you finish a project, you come to a crossroads. And it wasn't just the next book or a book or the first of five books. This is the book. This is 20 years of my life in this book. The publisher said, I'm going to give you a month and then start asking about your second book. And I said, give me a decade. I am not, this is not. So then what I'm leading to is I'm in the denouement of that excitement, five weeks over, launch is winding down. And then you start saying, what's the rest going to look like? I'm deeply in that pondering phase of what is my purpose. I can tell you that my immediate purpose, which I still immediately and deeply connect with is I want the entire world to be able to have the permission and aptitude to just take a minute, a minute to think, to breathe, to have the oxygen in their day, to learn how to use thinking as a business tool without having to do it hiding around a corner like a smoker because thinking is embarrassing. And and that's a pretty big mission. I think that's going to carry me for a little while. This sentiment is at the heart of Juliet's new book, A Minute to Think. I was curious to know how she's handling the aftermath, I guess, of publishing a book to see a pretty bow tied on what is in effect 20 years of her life. For me, I fall apart for a few months, if not more, after the hard work is done. Well, the falling apart is a good drop for where we're heading later with the book choice. But one philosophy that is helpful is not to have any emotions be outlawed in the process. And I'm very good at welcoming large, rough emotions, weeping, sadness, disappointment, anger. I get it. They're all good for us. I don't have a problem letting them be in myself. It's the slightly gray middle funk. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean, yeah. That I'm really intolerant of. And I I have this beautiful emotional facility. I don't know if you've ever seen Broadcast News, that old movie with Holly Hunter. For my whole life, have identified with the moment where she unplugs what was a physical phone every morning, and she sits the phone on her lap, and she just weeps like a keening Irish (laughs) widow for two minutes. And then she just, and then goes to work and does amazing work. But- Because I have a family who has struggled with 
pretty much everyone on my mother's side a lot of different kinds of depression. Mm. And I was always the one who didn't get it exactly the same way. That muddy, unmotivated, I just want to watch Netflix and eat Ben and Jerry's kind of a mood. I tend to run from that. And so for me, it's embracing that it's not only going to be sad or happy, that I just sometimes am going to be funky. And that's the one that I need to get my arms around with a little more love and acceptance. That's helpful. I'm not much one for the dramatic emotions. I am pretty level, but when I'm off kilter, it is in that place of kind of ennui <laughs> and kind of like, mm. you know what, whatever. And and I know enough about it to kind of unfortunately beat myself up about it rather than be gentle with myself around it. So I'm still trying to learn that as well. It's one of the things I'm working with our children most about is they get it. If they're sad or mad, they can show it. But A, to accept the gray weirdness, and then so important for a family of intellectuals, the B of you don't have to understand it. That you don't have to sit and say, what was it that made me feel funky? Why am I in this? Just skip that part. Because the understanding is a very taxing assignment. You can never really get there. And so I think I'm just trying to tell them you get to feel that way. And so for me in the post-launch, I'm having a little bit of that, but it's still pretty early and there's a lot of excitement. I remember you and me had this conversation about uh, working in a training company, selling to companies, which we do. And you said something that was seared into my brain, which you said, I remember before the first book, how hard it was to have the respect that you need to do B2B business. And I'm already seeing that you're right, that there's something about having the book that just makes people feel a sense of trust and connection with you. It makes the day job easier just to do business Mm -hmm. and find new clients and all that. And then that can free your heart to do things that are bigger. And that's really what I'm trying to kind of cook in my head. I know that there's either a foundation or a philanthropy. That is really where I want my efforts centered in three to five years. And I just can't quite yet get it formed. I mean, you're right. We've got a nice segue to this. But so tell me the book you're going to read from. Mm. So the book is called When Things Fall Apart. It's by a Buddhist teacher named Pema Chodron, who's been one of my favorite human beings for as long as I can remember. I'm not a religious person, but I belong to a Buddhist Sangha in Los Angeles many, many years ago, and I made one of the biggest mistakes of my life, which was when I was dating my husband, I took him once, and he didn't like it, and then I stopped going. Husbands. God, can't live with them. (laughs) Can't get rid of them once you're married, or it's tricky. (laughs) Right, right, it's tricky. So that, no, I should have kept that for myself and kept going, but there's always been this theme Mm. for me, a thread, and some of the Dharma-based Buddhism has been a little thick for me, but Pema is the most accessible teacher you could ever come across. I know you're a fan of hers also, so we could speak from inside the Pema (laughs) circle. The saddest thing about Pema Chodron is that some digital smart person hasn't grabbed her earlier and made a billion videos of her talking because she's very hard to find stuff. She's only her writings. She's a person who is the perfect antidote to my natural heart on myselfness. Mm. And just the amount of love in everything that she teaches has been very, very soothing for me over the years. She does a wonderful job at bridging that kindness to also reality. 
you just know that this mm-hmm. is a woman who lived a life and had hardship in her own life and her own family. So when you read her work, I find it's not diluted by some kind of, you've been locked in a monastery for 30 years. There's a kind of connection mm-hmm. just to the bruising of the real world around that. Mm. Sure. And she used to do these teachings where that she broadcast, I guess they never video grabbed them, but she used to do live broadcasts to Los Angeles and her talk about not having a speaker persona, <laughs> talk about the sweet realness mm. of her and flawedness, overt public shared imperfection. It just is like sucks you into her teachings immediately. So quite easily read this entire book. I've read this many times. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of copies on my shelves. How did you pick the two pages? That was really hard. <laughs> that was really hard because I went through so many different ones. I tried a little bit to avoid things that were a little too thick mm. in Buddhist. I don't think Maitri and Bodhisattva should be you know, something that your audience is challenged to absorb in 60 seconds. So I just picked something that talked about discomfort because we're in such yes. discomfort. Let me do a kind of formal introduction. So my friend, Juliet Fund, author of the book, A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Business, and Do Your Best Work, reading from the wonderful Pema Chodron, When Things Fall Apart. Over to you, Juliet. Generally speaking, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. But for practitioners or spiritual warriors, people who have a certain hunger to know what is true, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, and fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in and when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're like messengers that show us with terrifying clarity exactly where we're stuck. This very moment is the perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. Those events and people in our lives who trigger our unresolved issues could be regarded as good news. We don't have to go hunting for anything. We don't need to try to create situations where we reach our limit. They occur all by themselves with clockwork regularity. Each day, we're given many opportunities to open up or shut down. The most precious opportunity presents itself when we come to the place where we think we can't handle whatever is happening. It's too much. It's gone too far. We feel bad about ourselves. There's no way that we can manipulate the situation to make ourselves come out looking good. And no matter how hard we try, it just won't work. Basically, life has just nailed us. It's as if you looked at yourself in the mirror and you saw a gorilla. The mirror is there and it's showing you and what you see looks bad. And so you try to angle the mirror so you'll look a little better. But no matter what you do, you still look like a gorilla. That's being nailed by life, the place where you have no choice except to embrace what's happening or to push it away. Most of us do not take these situations as teachings. We automatically hate them. We run like crazy. We use all kinds of escape addictions that stem from the moment where we meet our edge and we just can't stand it. We feel we have to soften it, to pad it with something, and we become addicted to whatever it is that seems to ease the pain. In fact, the rampant materialism we see in the world stems from this moment. 
And as I was reading the end of that, I thought about an interview I did yesterday. I think a lot of busyness stems mm -hmm. from that moment too. I think that the numbing aspect of busyness is one that we could talk about if you like, but I found that section so helpful for me the first time I read it because softening and letting go of control probably didn't come naturally to me originally. And there's something about the more status you get in your career, mm. I find it's harder and harder to keep softening. Right. Juliet, what's the connection between softening and managing busyness? Busyness keeps us very effectively numb. And I am always reminded of a woman I met at a golf resort in California who was a client of mine. She said her husband died three years before she met me. And she noticed that in that three-year period, she had never taken a shower for about for more than a minute or so, because she knew that if she ever lingered in that happy, calm, steamy, private place, that her grief would just catch her. So she just stayed moving, moving, busy mm. and numb. And I think that we have been using busyness, especially in the last 18 months, but probably for a very long time, to numb, mm -hmm. to get away from softness. And to, to purposely, there's a, there's a a mechanism that you could almost watch happen if you were staring at a human being from a nanny cam, they start to feel a feeling. They are unwilling to go to that feeling and they pick up the phone and now the feeling is gone and they're in the phone and they've passed it. And But there is a, there's a price I really believe we pay for that constant sublimating. Mm. And whether you're going to be Holly Hunter and, and weep <laughs> or not, getting curious... Yeah about what was it? And this actually happens in real time. I think it's so interesting. You're, you're working along and all of a sudden you start feeling off. And to stop and slow down and get soft and say, Some, something must have just happened in the last seven to 10 minutes. I don't realize what it was. And then you realize, oh, is that email that I skimmed about we lost 600 books as an order? Or was that moment where my kid came in and said, daddy is better than you or whatever? There's always an antecedent yeah. to that discomfort, but you, it's not going to just be there. You have to sort of get curious about it. I mean, what that says is that the act of managing busyness is superficially about tactics but it's more fundamentally mm -hmm. around uh, a courage to be present to yourself. Mm. It's a big part of that. I think that also there's a sibling to that emotional willingness, and that is creative openness, mm. that in the same way that we accidentally push aside emotion, I think that there's a lot of times when the muse is standing right outside the door with a chalice <laughs> of ideas and we're busy in our phone. And yeah. so that impulse of, can you follow a little thread? Mm. You know, you see a little edge of a thread and one of the threads could head toward emotion. Yeah. Am I actually angry or sad right now? And I had you just follow, 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 follow. And then I think it's the same feeling that do I have a beginning of an idea? I think I might have a little sip of an idea here. And then to slow down and get unbusy and follow, follow, mm. follow, I think are exactly the same, that getting curious. I mean, as I was thinking about this conversation, Juliet, and I was thinking about my own 
predilection towards busyness because I have too many things to do all the time. And I've read your book. I've read other books. <laughs> I know the value of this. I'm okay at creating space to create because mm -hmm. I just have enough history and experience to know how to go. This is an open exploratory place. So, you know, some of that chalice of ideas gets dumped on my desk and I find all the bad ones and think that those are the good ones, but no matter. <laughs> but I feel myself anxious about just being less busy. I feel like I'm mourning a lack of busyness because it means I've lost a sense of maybe purpose or maybe just importance, a more kind of ego-driven mm. thing. How do you help people manage the anxiety of stepping away from busyness? There's two answers that leap to mind. I'll just figure out which one should be first. I think that there's a subliminal feeling at work as if there's a gigantic endless piece of butcher paper on the <laughs> wall. We're writing down every single thing that we do. And then when we die, somebody counts it. How many things that you do. And that worship of quantity is such a curious place to go into deeper and deeper. I was on in a conversation with an executive who's got a $10 million training company, 300 employees, millions of people love him. And he's talking about wanting to scale. Mm. I got to get bigger. And I just kept trying to politely say, I'm just so curious. <laughs> can you tell me why? Right. Why bigger? Why bigger? What do you need more of? Mm -hmm. It's not the money. It's maybe status. Is it? And why is it so bottomless? So that conversation with yourself right. about what is this all adding up to, I think is really, really critical to have to sort of put a pin in that balloon mm. of the values around busyness. But then I think there's a logistical issue also, which is that if you block a whole day for creativity, it might be completely overwhelming and unworkable for most people. So what people do is they do time blocking, which is they say, I'm going to work on podcasts from eight to nine and writing from nine to 10 and da, 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 da. That's sort of the opposite problem where now you've robotically <laughs> driven yourself into a lane where you're going forward. The technique that we've been playing with as an interim place mm. is we're calling time sketching, mm, which is like just, yeah, give yourself a little structure, but in pencil. Mm. Because you know as well, if you were writing an article and all of a sudden yeah. the muse is rubbing your back and you're <laughs> on it, the last thing you want to know is, oh my gosh, it's time for social media because it's 10.01. 10 yeah, exactly. Terrible, yeah. terrible, terrible idea. So that's the moment where you're constantly going. You're giving yourself a little handhold of control with a sketch of an idea. But then in between human messiness or your need to have an appetite or a bladder or maybe be improvisationally called to something else, yeah. that pencil is a critical shift in the way that people give themselves that structure. Mm. It does feel that behind that, I mean, I love this idea of sketching in time because the whole time blocking thing just has never worked for me. As soon as I block it out of my calendar... It's an absolute guarantee that that's not what I'll be doing. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> it's my contrarian nature, which is like, I'll show you, Michael. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to make me do something that's that I don't want to do. So I'm like, it's a nightmare. So you've given me permission to let go of some of that. 
I think, Juliet, for me, and when I see others as well, is that it's like the butcher paper. There's always more that I can be doing. And I'm, I'm not always quite sure, actually, how to understand where the quality is. I mean, you know, you've talked about quantity and playing the game of quantity, and that's an unwinnable game, and it's not even a useful game. It implies that you're mm. going, so it's about the quality. It's about, relatedly, you know, how much is enough? How do you help yourself or help others find the work that actually matters? You have to keep quantity on the table Mm. in order to get to quality because quantity will threaten it. Mm. So if you're spread too thin, there's no room for quality. You have to keep asking that question, why? Why this thing? Why so much? Why so broad? Why so many? Then you get to needing a definition for what is productivity in the first place. To produce something of value is supposed to be the definition Mm -hmm. of productivity. We, of course, confuse activity with productivity. No new thing at the end, of (laughs) course, not really being productive. So for me, I make it very simple. I say, did I make anything on my desk today better, bigger, or more beautiful Mm -hmm. in the course of the day? And that means that there should be able to be a before and after experience of that work. That means that I should be able to say, here's what it looked like at 9 a.m. and here's what it looked like at 5 p.m., even if it was a tiny incremental shift. Mm -hmm. The problem with regular work for most people is there are so many fire drills and so much getting back to even and so much messy middle that they get to the end of the day and they survey everything and there's not a single before after transition. And it sucks the life out of people trying to keep working without gratification of, I built that all day long. So for me to look for quality is getting quiet. Mm. What's the stuff I care the most about? And then where can I make that before after experience happen? Can I better could be improving a flow with our client process. Bigger could be five more people on a social media feed. More beautiful doesn't have to do with aesthetics only. It could be that things have been a little tense with one of my employees Uh, and I have a heart to heart and I smooth it. mm. It's really more beautiful as a relationship. Mm. So transition is what gratifies us. And maybe for some, that simple definition will help point them toward the things to pick up. Do you work that on just a day by day basis? I mean, does that scale up to thinking in terms of I mean, what other units do you think of? Do you think of them like at the end of the week or the end of the month, at the end of the quarter? I'm curious to know what your other blocks are in terms of how you think about what you're creating for the world. All, all blocks, (laughs) because a lot of work is incremental. So you have 400 things on your OmniFocus list, and at the end, you've built a course that is a before and after, but we have to appreciate the little incremental wins. Today, I approved motion graphics for this one section, and it was more beautiful than it was this morning. And so that sense of looking for before and after is really, really important. There's also a planning aspect that you talked about where we have to say, what is worth our time in the first place? Because it's not just before and after. There's a lot of things that you could before and after with great success, it has to do with heading yourself first in a direction that you fundamentally care about. As I think of myself putting, using that framework, Juliet, which feels super helpful immediately, 
one of the annoying aspects of me is how I hack my own systems. So, you know, I set up a system to try and help me behave in a certain way, and then I resist it and I turn it around and I screw myself over. It's deeply annoying. And I can just feel how I could start asking myself these questions around stuff that matters slightly less. It's not entirely trivial. It's just 10% off the thing that really matters. Do you have a sense of how you help people come back to the work that matters most when they've perhaps wandered slightly off the path? We have a core framework in the book that is the way that we teach mm. this. And it has to do with two sets of content called the thieves and the questions and how they go together. The two summarize it for our time here. The thieves are the reason that we find ourselves lost in low value work. They are four main reasons that we get overloaded. And the questions are the antidotes. Mm. They are four questions that you ask yourself that disarm these bad guys. I like a good question. But list. the one, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, I know you do. But the one that you're kind of talking about is the thief of activity. Mm. And activity is interesting because it's thrilling. It's a whitewater ride. We're checking a lot of boxes. Our butcher paper that we're getting yeah. graded on in heaven is longer every day. <laughs> you know, all that good stuff is happening. But it can lure us into many mm. stimulating shallow winds all day long. Yeah. And the question that we use to defeat the thief of activity is simply, what deserves my attention? Mm. And if you use that as a filter in that quiet moment in the day, which I'm sure you have some version of so, a planning moment as you yeah. start your day, that simple question of what deserves my attention, what's been beautiful in watching people use it is how much people already know mm. the answer. It's not really, there's this myth of, I just can't tell what is high value on my desk. How will I ever mm. figure it out? When really, Average people and smart people and all people have an instinct. Yeah. If they can just get quiet for a second, they go, oh, yeah, right, of <laughs> course. This is the juicy thing. Yeah, yeah. And these are the stimulating easy wins. The answer is not convoluted. Yeah. It's just we don't give ourselves time to go through the cycle of asking the question. I start my day by asking myself three questions, my check-in questions. Number one is, what will I let go of? Just in case there's kind of stuff that's weighing me down, I can just put aside. Second, what am I grateful for? And there's all that research around how gratitude is just this little super caffeinated thing of goodness. And then the third question, which I'm now going to change, is what will I focus on? And what will I focus on takes me to the butcher paper list. What deserves my attention speaks to the heart and the head. And just feels like it's going to be a more helpful prompt for me to manage that thief of activity. It also may not always have an answer that has to do with work. That's right. And maybe I need to stand up right now and go to the front room. My kids just went to school, and usually I'm in podcast prep. I kind of go quiet for about a half an hour before but I knew that I hadn't connected with my son last night. And I knew that what deserved my attention was five minutes to hear about the project he's building mm -hmm. before I come into you. 
and that that would make me more centered and focused for you because I had checked the most important box. So what deserves my attention sometimes takes you to a vacation. It might take you all sorts of places, but it is an amazing amazingly facile question. I do a similar thing in the morning. People love to hear about morning routines, except I have an accountability buddy that I send those things to. that's good. So I write to my friend Mindy every morning, three things I'm grateful for, three things I'm surrendering, similar to the Mm -hmm. what can I let go of, and then three business wins. Because I think that there's a wonderful Freakonomics podcast that talks about what they call headwind, tailwind asymmetry. Have you ever come across this one? I don't think I have. I love this. This gratitude <laughs> practice has changed completely because of this. Headwind, like a bicyclist, is what is stopping mm-hmm. you. Bicyclists are very, very aware when totally. they're in a headwind. Tailwind is carrying you, pushing you effortlessly along. Interesting bicyclists tend to not Holy. notice when there's a I tailwind. Am I'm like, I'm cycling yeah. so fast today. I'm like, oh, I've got a gale behind me. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And the same is for us and our goals and aspirations of the day is it's so easy to see the headwinds and so hard to see both the overt and covert tailwinds, the overt tailwind of the wonderful introduction that Michael made for me or the covert tailwind of I was allowed to go to a wonderful university that springboarded me into a life of being informed in the world or whatever our tailwinds are that we have an asymmetrical leaning to pay attention to them. And so as I do my gratitude, I've noticed that I needed a business wins section to purposefully be noting victories and tailwinds because sometimes they're hard to see. Juliet, as always, this is a wonderful conversation. As a final question for you, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between us? Oh, I'm so glad you just asked me that question because I have such a specifically good answer today. (laughs) So my whole life is about teaching people to appreciate and give themselves permission to have space. Mm. And watching you take the pauses that you take as you prepare your next question has been the most fascinating sidebar to this podcast. (laughs) And I just want to break apart what is happening inside me in those moments because it's so wonderful So many of us need the confidence that you're demonstrating. But what happens, and I'm guessing maybe to others, the first couple seconds, is everything okay, (laughs) right? And then the second couple seconds of, wow, he's just letting himself think on an audio-only podcast where it's just going to be silent. And then that starts to get really curious. And then the impressiveness part (laughs) comes of, wow, he is really... Letting himself digest and prepare and be ready without worrying about if people think the mic's gone dead, Uh, that progression is really worth noticing because there are many versions of this that people avoid all day Mm. long when they need a minute before they answer a question to a loved one at work, to their own queries in the morning. And I just commend you and highlight that thoughtful process. It's just beautiful to watch. Thank you, Julia. That's very kind of you. (laughs) I'm going to have to make a note to the editor. Don't remove all the long, awkward pauses. (laughs) (laughs) What an encouraging way to end the conversation. Juliet's recognition to me, it's so nice of her to say this, to take a breath and a break, encouragement to take a moment to think and acknowledging just the power of that 
how that made me a better interviewer, how it deepened the relationship, deepened the conversation, deepened the thinking. Maybe I'm not so swept up in all the busy, busy, go, go, go after all. I mean, I am, but maybe not all the time. I will also say that I've actually changed my morning routine now, I mean, just a bit. The question I ask myself, as well as what will I let go of and what will I focus on, turns out that the one Juliet suggested, what demands my attention, I tried it out for a while and I like it. But the question that I found has even more power for me is what's calling to me today? What's calling to me today? That's just a little broader, a little more gentle, a little more whimsical. I'm trying to invite in the muse. I'm trying to shield myself from the tyranny of the to-do. If you liked my conversation with Juliet, I've got two other suggested interviews for you. John Zeratsky, that conversation's called How to Focus on What Matters. And he's written a number of great books around just how to quickly and efficiently get stuff done, which I know sounds almost contra to Juliet's conversation, but it's actually about an efficiency of the doing which creates the space for the thinking. And Octavia Gorodama, wonderful person. I love being in conversation with her. I've got a new episode of her coming up, a little bit talking about the How to Begin book. But the one we've done in the past is called The Double-Edged Sword. There's also an exploration of time, commitment, and who we are in this world. For more of Juliet, go check out julietfunt.com. She has a busyness test you can take, which will actually connect to the book, but actually give you a sense of, well, just how busy are you? So you'll find that at julietfunt.com. And meantime, a thank you from me to you for listening all the way through to the episode. Thank you for giving a bit of love on your podcast app. Thank you for passing this conversation on to the person who needs to hear it. Because there's one person in your life who you just go, oh, you need to hear this. So ping them a note. Let them know that it's there for them. And thank you for that. Word of mouth is the slow but sure way that I grow the best possible group of listeners for this podcast. There's more at the Duke Humphreys, our free membership site where you get transcripts and a good deal more. You find that on the website, mbs.works, and then find the podcast page. And I'll just say, you're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>